One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You've downloaded a podcast of NewsHour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-Jones. We've got an hour of discussion on a single topic each week on NewsHour Extra, and the topic this week is statues, uh, putting them up and taking them down. I've got Ian Brimacombe, who's producing this week's edition of the programme. Why statues? Well, statues have been a really hot topic in the past few weeks since the clashes in Charlottesville between neo-Nazis and counter-protesters, which left a woman dead. And the process of monuments being toppled has really been accelerating since 2015, when a congregation of African-Americans was murdered in a church in, in Charleston. So there's a lot of anxiety. Now, white supremacists have been using these Confederate symbols as sort of rallying points to energize their base. And there's been a lot of talk to bring those statues down. And so we're going to look at that. Why is that happening? And what should be done about it? Should they be kept up or should they be brought down? Yeah, it sort of fits in with all the identity politics that's happening at the moment. And it's not just the United States. There have been similar debates here in the UK. Absolutely. The events in the United States have renewed a debate here about what should be done about the many monuments all across the UK to various historical figures. Uh, A column in the Guardian newspaper singled out Admiral Horatio Nelson for his positions opposing the abolition of slavery, for example. So the columnist was asking, should we have these monuments up? So we're going to take a walk through the city and have a look at some of the monuments here in the UK. Okay, and we've got a great panel to discuss these issues this week. We've got John Davidson, senior correspondent at The Federalist, uh, Bonnie Greer, American playwright based here in London, and Professor Llewellyn Morgan of Oxford University. Let's just begin this by getting your your general take (coughs) on the Charlottesville General Lee statue. Up or down, Professor Morgan? Down, because we need to appreciate what a statue is, what a statue in in public space does. It's uh, an object that demands physically that you pay attention and, and respect it, essentially. And... I think the strongest arguments in relation to the, this statue and other Confederate statues are that that's unacceptable in societies that are you know, too diverse for that. At the same time, the historian in me finds the contemporary debate, finds what I've discovered about the erection of these statues, finds about what I've discovered about the Civil War as well, utterly precious and, and fascinating. And, and what I yearn for as well is some mechanism for retaining the rich history of of the monument. Bonnie Greer, up or down? I would say down and in a museum. I don't want it broken up. Um, I think there should be a museum where all these statues can be collected, particularly in a place like Charlottesville, which is the seat of a university, a great university. And so, therefore, that town is a collection of scholars and teachers. It's a perfect place for people to begin to talk about the conundrum of the Confederacy, the complexity of Robert E. Lee, deeply complex person, deeply complex in his response to, to, the, to the Union and to the, and to the Confederacy. Take him out of the park, where people are, as, as Llewellyn says, you have to stand and like look at him. And you're going to assume he's great. Mm. Put him somewhere where people can go and have the debate. So down but up in a museum. Yes, okay. put him in a museum. John Davidson? I think we lose a lot more than we gain by tearing these statues down. Um, I, I am for more statues. I'm for more context. But I'm not for the iconoclasm that we've seen sort of sweep the country in the past few weeks. 
I don't think that it has to do really with the Civil War or American history. I think it has everything to do with uh, contemporary uh, political fights and kind of the tribalism that we've seen emerge in America over the past year. But I'm definitely not for taking these things down. There is a complex history to the North and South in the wake of our Civil War. And feelings, as we've seen in America, run very deep about public memory of that war and all that came after. And we've even seen polls that show, you know, an overwhelming majority of Americans support keeping these statues up. I think they would also support adding context to the statues to bring out some of that history and to bring out some of that nuance, but also to add more statues. Uh, you know, we have these great stories of unionists in the South who were killed, who died for their beliefs at the hands of, of the Confederacy. Let's put statues up in our southern state houses that commemorate their sacrifices and their beliefs and values and balance out the story that we have been telling about uh, the South for so many years okay. uh, and really try to bring some of these things out into the light. Right. That's good to have your, your sort of opening statements, as it were. Uh, and I'm going to ask you in a minute, John Davison, just to give us some history of General Lee. But first of all, Bonnie Gray, you wanted to say something. Oh, I just wanted to say quickly that, you know, we have to remember that the South, uh, the Confederacy began to be romanticized almost immediately after it had lost. I want to stress it lost the war. And so the South then became this place of the lost cause of these noble people who were fighting for their freedom, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, it began to really hit peak peak thing in about 1920 when the Ku Klux Klan uh, was on the rise. And then you have Gone with the Wind, the most iconic American movie. All of this is false history. Okay, so so John Davidson, let's just run through uh, General Lee, because we're going to broaden this out as we go on through the programme. But we're talking about this because of this row about General Lee. And it's a good place to start. So, and I think for people who are you know not familiar with American history, could you just talk us through a, a sort of you know very much the minute guide to the Civil War? Uh, first <laughs> of all, uh, John Davidson. That's a tall order. Yeah, sure. Uh, General Lee, of course, was the commander of the Confederate armies during the war. He was a uh, patrician Virginia aristocrat, uh, and he was a slave owner. And interestingly, he. Um, emancipated his slaves that he had inherited from his wife's family in 1862 during the Civil War. It was a process that began years before then that was in his his father-in-law's will. But General Lee is a, a complicated figure and a conflicted figure as well. He was a distinguished officer of the army before the war and was asked by Lincoln to lead the federal army when the South seceded and when, when the uh, the fighting began. And he said no, because he didn't feel that he could fight against Virginia, his home state. That seems strange to us today to think about that. But the reality is most people in the United States felt similarly. Their primary allegiance was to their state. And they identified with their state a lot more strongly than they identified themselves as Americans or as right. belonging to a union. And so and that's that, one of the issues today is was right. you know, which people are either interpreting or reinterpreting history. Were these southern fighters, generals, uh, fighting for their state's rights or to protect slavery? And that's a contested issue today. And I think we have to be honest about the fact that at the end of the day, the South and, and the leaders of the South were fighting to preserve slavery. That's what it was all about. That was the reason for secession. So then just uh, on the statues, I think there are a few of him. And, but if you take monuments to him, it's about 100. 
something like that in the United States today. And there are many other statues to other leaders of the forces of the South. That's right. They're all over the country. And I think the history of how they got there is important. You know, in the years after the Civil War, many Confederate graves and cemeteries had fallen by the end of the 19th century into disrepair. And there were very few monuments at that time that were erected to the Confederacy, in part because it was considered treasonous to erect statues and monuments to the Confederate dead. But around the turn of the century, there was a petition by Southern families to be able to go and tend to the graves of the Confederate dead and to erect monuments in their memory. Okay, so John Davidson, that's very helpful. Thank you for a sort of potted history. And (laughs) before we move it on, anyone got comments on the potted history? Bonnie Greer. Well, I can say from my point of view as an African-American, everything that John has said is right, but then I'm looking at it from another angle. I'm seeing the statue of a man who preserved the enslavement of my ancestors. Now, that, that is a valid criticism. That's why I say they belong in museums, because then that whole discussion, everything that John talked about, can be placed in a setting that's peaceful and people can go back and forth. But the statue is an affront. And if and if you understand anything about that history, particularly in Charlottesville, particularly at university, that's what you know. Also, the, the statue is, a, is an assertion of an argument, isn't it? I mean, your impression in the South is very much of one particular part of the community managing to establish a commemoration of its past at the cost of, I think, as one of the things that Bonnie's suggesting, another history or another set of histories. So in a sense, it's there's a correction required. And, and, exactly. and, I, and, and I hear that you can supplement exactly. statues or, or, or add new statues. I'm, I'm sceptical of that. When you have a statue in the middle of a public space, it dominates and controls that space. I'll tell you what I, I'm going to do. We're going to listen to a couple of bits of tape and then I'll ask you to comment on them. And the first is an interesting one because it's Tracy Lee Crittenberger that would not tell you that uh, she is the great-great-granddaughter of General Lee. And uh, after Charlottesville, she and her brother released a statement about what had happened. And we got through to her and I asked her to give us her view on her forebears statues. We do not want another Charlottesville to happen. What happened, you know, that day was horrible and our hearts go out to everybody who lost somebody who had suffered injuries in their family. So if taking down the statues is going to stop another Charlottesville, then absolutely we're in favour of taking them down. I think... What's unfortunate is that other people have brought General Lee into this debate, and I don't think it's something he would have wanted. You know, we've always believed that he was all about duty, honor, and country, and he was uniting the country after the war. And so it is unfortunate that I think a lot of the good things that he has done and that he was known for are sort of being eclipsed by this other group that has sort of attached themselves to him. Right. So after the war, he tried to be a unifying figure. Yes. During the war, you know, some would say he was an insurgent sympathiser of of slave owners. Yes. (laughs) Um, And that's the part that is obviously a little tricky. You know, I'm probably biased, but I would certainly like to believe that he really was fighting for Virginia and his home state, that it was a difficult decision for him. He was asked by the Union Army to lead their troops, but he went for his state of Virginia. Did Virginia have slavery? Absolutely. So... It's naive to say that he was against slavery. I would like to believe that he would have become enlightened and and been against slavery, but that's not something I get to ask him. <laughs> so I think there are some actions that show that he was certainly a man of his times. 
And it'd be nice to think that he was enlightened and maybe above the times, but he wasn't. So that's is complicated. And I think that's part of the issue with the monuments. It's hard to take things 100% out of context. There is a context that needs to be surrounding what these men stood for. You now have a married name, as it were, Christenberger, but before that, you you were born, I think, Lee, right? Yes, correct. Uh, so how did that work? I mean, if in, in school, in your life, you know, subsequently, do people re- talk to you about General Lee? Are people very aware of who you are and who he was? Um, you know, it's interesting. Being the female, and so my name being Tracy Lee, it did not trigger as automatically it does my brother, who's... Robert Lee the fifth, or my father, <laughs> who's the fourth. You know that name certainly pops a little bit more than just Tracy Lee. Um, but I will say, people did become aware of it. And what I was always proud of, or happy about, because you can't control who your ancestors are, that everybody had so much respect for him. And it was always exciting and kind of cool for other people. And they're like, "Oh my gosh, you're related." But it was never like, "Oh my gosh, he owned slaves. Aren't you embarrassed?" It was really the gentleman that he was, the work that he did with Washington College before it became Washington and Lee, his leadership, his military duty, you know, those were things that people talked about. And the owning slaves piece just really wasn't out there. So, you know, that's, it's a reality, but that's, to me, sort of unfortunate that I hope he doesn't just become somebody who owns slaves. Well, I mean, yeah. that's almost happened, is not it? It seems to have happened, Yes. And that was uh, Tracy Lee Christenberger there, great-great-granddaughter of General Lee. Uh, Another view now, I think uh, John Davidson mentioned earlier, most Americans in the polls uh, say they want these statues to stay up, and those people include Matthew Evans, who describes himself as a camp commander of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, which basically means he's spending a lot of his time on Civil War reenactment battlefields, dressed up as a Confederate soldier, uh, doing the scenes of famous battles. Now, he's organised an online petition, which has attracted more than 30,000 signatures calling for historical Confederate monuments to stay up. I think instead of taking down monuments, we should be putting more up. These monuments weren't put up with the mindset of hatred. They were put up with the mindset of remembrance. And I think that's what people have forgotten. They were put there by many people after the Civil War, mostly in the 1890s, 1900s, you know, kind of to heal the wound of the Civil War, both Union and Confederate soldiers showed up to these monument dedications, and it was a symbol of moving on and and forgiveness. And I think a lot of people can learn from that in today's age. Do you think it's different if, as is the case with some of them, that they were put up much, much later as part of an argument about civil rights, the civil rights movement, to assert the, the campaign to keep segregation? Do you think that historical context makes a difference? I don't think so. I think the Jim Crow laws and, and the civil rights movement, that's its own history. Yeah, but what I'm asking um, is, if a statue was put up in that time as part of that argument, that statue might be seen rather differently from one that's put up in the 1890s. I don't agree with that. You have to remember, a lot of these, actually most of these monuments, they weren't put up by the cities, they were put up by private citizens. They were put up by people who possibly couldn't afford to donate a lot, but did. To remember a time in our country's history where it was almost torn apart, I became a better American because of going to these battlefields and seeing these monuments and learning about them. So I, I think if we learn from it, 
people would understand the history better. And that was uh, Matthew Evans. And I'd just like to pick up on, on that point about the timing of when these statues go up and whether that makes a difference or not. And just to be clear, John Davidson, you made the point that a lot went up in the sort of 1910, 1915 period, right? And that was, you think, to do with relatives memorialising their forebears. And, and then there was another peak in the 1960s, which is the one I was talking about in my conversation with Matthew Evans, which was in the middle of the civil rights stuff. So, Professor Morgan, why don't you just talk us through whether that makes a difference in your view? Well, it seems to make a, an enormous difference, along with evidence of, of more coordination of construction of these statues than when we were hearing there. Many of them funded, apparently, or gain a bit of funding from the United Daughters of the Confederacy. These statues are made to a particular style. You can very much overstate the degree of sort of private or local initiative here. But yes, fundamentally, I mean, my experience of a statue like this was in, in Memphis, as it happens. And a statue of uh, a Confederate general that goes up in 1964, which is a few blocks away from one of the most powerful memorials of the civil rights movement, which is the Lorraine Hotel, where Martin Luther King was assassinated, where a museum has, has now been established. It's perfectly clear that these are two parts of a, an argument about history and an argument the the correct side of which is entirely clear. My, uh, to add to what Llewellyn said, my father, I remember as a child, I looked at a movie called The Red Ball Express, and it was about uh, servicemen, U.S. servicemen, who drove convoy trucks in World War II during the D-Day. I was sitting with my late father, and he turned, he looked at me, and he said, those were all black men. There were no white men who did that. That's what we did. And that amazed me, because I'm looking at a film in which my father and his associates were excluded. And what it led me to do is read history at university, because what I wanted to learn was how did that happen, not only how that happened, but I wanted to learn the whole story. And that's what history is. It becomes the whole story. And we shouldn't, we deny the whole story if we put a monument in a place, as Ian says, which makes a statement about something that shuts down the argument, basically. John Davidson, let me pick up on that point about, well, let's say this one in Memphis in 1964. Do you see that in a different light to one that's put up in 1910 by, I don't know, the granddaughter of, or the daughter of someone who's fallen in the Civil War? Sure, absolutely. They have a different historical context and they came at a different historical moment. As we said, you know, the era of the turn of the century was about 50 years after the war and a time when a lot of these Civil War veterans were dying off. And that's when you see this first bloom of monuments and statues. And there's a much different historical context in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. And I think the motivations for a lot of the statues that we see that went up then were less about memorialization and more about a kind of defiant attitude about civil rights particularly. And I think that we need to understand the differences between these monuments. But I also want to say a word no, about... No, but I just want to press you on that. You're an upper. So are you still an <laughs> upper for the, for the ones in the 60s? I think that there's a lot stronger case to be made to keep the statues that went up earlier around the turn of the century and the first decades of the 20th century than there is to yeah. to keep up all of the uh, statues that went up in the 60s. Let's move away from the timing of these statues to the location of the statues. Because basically we're all saying to some degree context matters, historical context, where, when, why. Tell us about the where. A lot of these statues, they're on 
courthouse lawns on places of public business in these towns and cities, as well as being in public parks and cemeteries. And I do think that part of the placement of the statues uh, is connected to what the statues uh, were saying at the time. And it's true that in, in the South, a lot of these statues went up in a spirit of not only of remembrance and of mourning the dead, but also of defiance and of Southern pride. So it's, it's a complicated mix of motives, right, about the subjects of the statues and their placement and what they represented to the South and to uh, the survivors of the Civil War. Well, let's take the sugar off this, okay? And I try to say this to a lot of young people. First of all, I don't believe that Abraham Lincoln even called this the Civil War. This was sedition. We have to be very clear about this. This was the South firing on an American installation, bringing the flag down, and declaring war against the federal government. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was Lincoln worked really hard to reconcile these two forces. That's part of what it was, because he was smart. He knew there was no sense in keeping this going. The South defied that. The South created a myth, and a lot of America picked it up, that somehow this was some kind of noble cause against the evil North. Reconstruction started, and it was part of it was to allow African Americans to be rehabilitated into the culture. That was thrown out the window by the South, and it picked up from about 1870 on. That's... And and, and the North, the North was complicit in that. I'm not trying to defend the South. Of course, the South was, was guilty of starting the Civil War, and they fought for a vile and reprehensible cause. But the North was complicit not only in uh, the oppression of black people in the South, uh, but let's be honest, if we're talking about the the problem of slavery and and the sins of our forefathers, you know, it's not as though Abraham Lincoln was anti-slavery. Nobody's talking about that. Please don't lay that one down. I'm saying the larger issue here is why should we keep monuments up to people who held slaves? What it's about is looking, first of all, understanding what what the Civil War was, how it started, what it was about, and not honoring these people. Put them somewhere. And as you said at the beginning, these were families who wanted to come together to not to forget their dead. Absolutely no problem with that. But put them where they're supposed to be, where we can talk we're, about what this really we're is. We're going to address the point that John Davidson made about basically slippery slope mm-hmm. uh, straight after the news summary. But just before we get there, John Davidson, I'd like you just to address Bonnie Greer's point. When you hear the discussion of civil war versus insurgency, do you find that many of the people who are on the same side as you in this debate want these statues up? Do they see it in that light? Well, at the risk of speaking for 62% of (laughs) Americans who say they want to keep these statues up, I think Americans understand that slavery was wrong and that the South was on the wrong side of the war and that uh, the South was in rebellion against, against the Union. I like to think that we have reached... Uh, finally, a consensus about the moral wrongness of the Confederacy's cause. And to the extent that we haven't, then we need to redouble our efforts to educate our young people and to educate the public. Uh, and statues and monuments and public spaces are great contexts to be able to do that. You're listening to a podcast of News Hour Extra. This week we're talking about statues, the rights and wrongs of putting them up and bringing them down. And uh, don't forget, there are many other podcasts from the World Service including Witness, that's the history one, where they take a figure from history who's got a particularly interesting story and uh, do that in a single episode every day. So that's Witness, and this one's BBC NewsHour Extra. A reminder of our panel, we've got John Davidson, senior correspondent at The Federalist, Bonnie Greer, American playwright, and Professor Llewellyn Morgan, 
of Oxford University. Now, we're just in the end of the first half there, got onto the slippery slope, which was inevitable <laughs> that that would come up. And uh, Donald Trump uh, used that argument in this now famous Trump Tower press uh, conference that he gave straight after Charlottesville. This is what he said. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down, excuse me, are we going to take down, are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue? Because he was a major slave owner. Now we're going to take down his statue. There we are, Donald Trump using the slippery slope argument. Uh, Professor Llewellyn Morgan, does he have a good point? Uh, he he doesn't, although he has a point that's that's kind of being supported from another direction sometimes. As well. I mean, we've had suggestions that Nelson should come down from. from we're we're going to get on to Admiral Nelson. Okay, in a, a later stick, point. Stick, stick, to the, stick to Washington. I'll, 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 so basically, these great American founding fathers, you yeah. know, they owned slaves. So uh, if if you take one, if you take Lee down, why not these guys? Well, the important point is that we're not objecting to Robert E. Lee as. A slave owner, specifically, we were objecting to Robert E. Lee as a representative of the Confederacy and everything that the Confederacy stood for. On the other hand, when we look at Washington, whether he's on Mount Rushmore or whether he's on the dollar bill, you know, it's a fairly big deal to remove Washington from the scene. What does he represent? He represents the founding principles of of the United States. He's not understood as a slave owner, he's not being celebrated. Yeah, but that as... could change. I mean, that's one of the dangers, isn't it, of taking values of today and applying them to uh, historical figures? Because it may be that if race issues become even more strident in the United States, that people will say, look, he may have founded America, but he was a slave owner. And that's the important thing. They may say that indeed, but what's what's essential to hold to, I mean, I, I say as a non-American, so no right to say it really, but is those principles that he and indeed Thomas Jefferson represented that, and recognising that they themselves may not have fulfilled those great principles but established principles for later generations to realise in a, in, a, in a fuller sense. It's important historically to appreciate that the historical actuality of individuals is less important than what they... Symbolize. I think that's the thing. Is John, Rob- John Davison, do you want to come back on that? Well, I, I would just say that we already see in American universities, and we've seen for some time, George Washington and the other founding fathers are taught as slave owners and as people who, yes, they were America's founding fathers, but they built America as a sort of slave empire and this sort of narrative that comes mostly from the left that uh, America was sort of a, uh, from its founding was found to be this this slave empire. The founding fathers were complicit in it. And that's why, you know, it didn't take 48 hours after Trump said that for people to start calling for Washington statues to come down, for a statue of Abraham Lincoln to be defaced in Chicago. Somebody in Philadelphia called for the statue of Frank Rizzo to come down, who was the mayor in the 70s. Uh, You you know, the, the slippery slope was confirmed almost as soon as Donald Trump said that. And part of the reason is because we don't teach 
George Washington anymore as a person who was primarily committed to establishing the nation and establishing the founding ideals of, of America and American constitutionalism. We teach him as a, as a racist, as a slave owner. This is uh, what a lot of universities are teaching. And I think it's why you see a lot of calls to tear down a whole swath of, of our, our historical memory and, and these statues and monuments, not just connected to the Confederacy, but connected to a, a whole swath of our past. But, but Bonnie Greer. Well, when I was at university many decades ago, I can remember going to Mount Vernon and uh, being taken to one of the slave cabins. And the person escorting us said, this is where the people who worked there lived. And what came out of my mouth immediately was, they didn't work here, they were slaves. And, and, And I think the new generation is saying, yes... That's what he was, and we want to talk about him from that angle. I, I, I sympathize. I do. I sympathize with professors. I sympathize with universities who have to deal with that tumult. Many professors are not educated to be able to talk about this whole thing in the well, round. Okay, but do you think Washington should come down? No, I don't think Washington should Why come not? down. Washington didn't uh, a, a revolt against the federal government in the United States of America. But why should that be the judge? Why should that well, be the judge? Well, no, it's, 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 it's a good judge. If we're talking about the United States of America... It's a good way to actually make a gauge. My problem with Lee is that he was in sedition, well, and uh, that's the way it hmm, should be taught. Is it? Because, I mean, it seems to me that you're you're talking a lot about slavery, and, you know, you can see why you're talking about slavery. And yet when it comes to the justification for taking the statute down, you're not talking about slavery, you're talking about he was a, an insurgent, and that's the problem. But is he it was really an insurgent... His insurgency was to support the slave power. That is what the South was called. It was the slave power. And I think all of that needs to be taught. Washington was not an insurgent against the slave power. Yes, he had slaves. Thomas Jefferson's own children were enslaved, and he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Well, he wasn't so, insurgent against Britain. No, well, I, I, well, that's I, different I, I saw, thing. I saw his statue in London. That's so. a different thing. <laughs> well, and, and, and just a reminder that we're not necessarily thinking about what Robert E. Lee was at the time of the Civil War. We're, hmm. we're, we're potentially thinking right. about what Robert E. Lee was in 1924 when his statue went up in, in Charlottesville. And there it's much clearer, I think, what he represents. And it's a, it's a white dominance in the, in the, in the southern states. But, but just uh, uh, on this, it does seem that hmm. we're all I think, presumably, John Davison, you would draw the line somewhere. So the slippery slope argument doesn't really work, does it? Because let me give you an example. No one would want a statue of Hitler in their city. Sure. Uh, so, sure. so no one's going to agree with that. And they're right, all going to right. say, right, Hitler, Hitler down. The principle is there that the statues come down when we look back on figures and disapprove of them. So it is a question of where you draw the line, isn't it, John? And, and, and look, there's a difference between statues uh, that are torn down in the wake of a regime change or uh, the, after, the immediate aftermath of a war and, and statues that, uh, that, that go up decades later and that have been up for, for a century, right? If we wanted to ban statues to the Confederacy because the Confederacy was a seditious rebellion, then we should have banned statues to the Confederacy in 1865. We didn't. Uh, we didn't do that for a lot of reasons. Um, and the statues went up and they stayed up for, for decades and decades. They stayed up for generations. And now they're with us. They're part of our landscape and they're part of a past that we have to grapple with and we have to reconcile ourselves to uh, and that we need to do so with compassion and humility 
And I think it's, it is a slippery slope when we begin uh, to sort of get up on a moral high horse and say, this person is acceptable to have a statue uh, to, but this person is yeah, not. But you can't do and that because of the arbitrary, We do it surely. all the time. Surely you can, it's an arbitrary standard that we're going to apply we to the past. All the time. And, you know, uh, look, at, look at Rome. You know, you, you have statues all through Rome. The Colosseum. Why, why didn't the Christians tear down the Colosseum they brick by brick? They weren't empowered to do it. Okay, Professor. Well, they, they, they were eventually. On that, one, on that one, let's bring in Professor Morgan. Cause he's, <laughs> he, this is what he teaches at Oxford. So, so uh, you know, I mean, it occurs to me that the reason Roman statues are inoffensive now is that it's just so long ago, no one really knows what they stand for. Well, maybe that's that's true. So, can, I, yeah. can I talk a little bit about but what the Roman attitude to, to putting up statues? Right. Because, I mean, it's, it's for me, it's great in a sense that everybody's being so classical at the moment, since what we're dealing with here is a very Greco-Roman thing, putting up statues in the first place. The Romans in particular were very, very good at putting up statues. They pioneered pulling statues down as well. Oh, really? and they, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, and pioneered something in between, which was kind of recarving one statue so it looked like somebody else. Uh, we're going to move on to the UK. And the issue flared up here just this week. Uh, there was a piece in The Guardian saying that Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square should come down. Now, Nelson won all these battles for Britain against Napoleon and is generally very well regarded for that, but he also apparently opposed the abolition of slavery. So that's now come up as an issue. Uh, and just to explore some of those things, I've been for a walk in central London. London is full of statues. I'm just in Trafalgar Square now, beneath Nelson on top of his huge column, and there are lots of tourists at the bottom taking selfies with him, and then as I look around the square beyond the fountains, there's King George IV on top of a horse, and then above me, someone called Havelock, who I think is largely forgotten, but according to the inscription, did something in Punjab, and that's about it. Most of these people are royals, aristocrats, and military winners, and I'm just going down towards Buckingham Palace to see a, a morally ambiguous statue, Lord Curzon. Right, I've just come down the mall, and here he is, Lord Curzon, big statue, standing a bit like a Roman senator, and it says, erected by his friends in recognition of a great public life. He ran India, he was the viceroy there, and it's true that he did do some things like education reform, I think police reform, rule of law, that kind of thing, but he did also oversee a famine, and this is what he said about that. Any government which imperiled the financial position of India in the interests of prodigal philanthropy would be open to serious criticism. Well, I'm sure that statement would no longer stand up. So what about Lord Curzon? Should he be here for his educational reforms or brought down for overseeing a famine? Next stop, Parliament Square. And here we are in front of the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben, which is clad in scaffolding at the moment, being repaired, as you may have heard, for the next four years. Now, this is a top spot to have a statue, and some of the British greats are here, Churchill, Lloyd George, Disraeli, and behind me, Peel, and some uh, big international names, Mahatma Gandhi. But just in the corner here, what about Viscount Palmerston? Now, he was the Prime Minister in the 1800s, famous for not allowing anyone to sit down in a Cabinet meeting, but also initiated the Opium Wars, which caused such devastation in China. Quite unimaginable that there would be a statue to him in China, so should there be one to him here in one of the top spots in London. 
mean, all their mothers love these people, but are they appropriate according to today's moral values? So there we are. Quick tour of central London. And uh, Professor Morgan, I'm going to bring you in here because you presumably witnessed at close quarters the Cecil Rhodes argument. So Cecil Rhodes was a, a big colonialist with you know, what are now very unpalatable views on race. And there was a, a debate about whether his statue should be present in a South African university mm-hmm. and then in Oxford University. And it's still up. In, he's down in South Africa and he's up in Oxford, right? In Oxford, there are a few memorials around the place. The most significant memorial is, isn't a representation of them so much as the as Rhodes House, where the Rhodes Scholarships are, uh, are based. But Rhodes is present in Oxford. That's the important thing. And there is a statue. A statue-dominating space in a university in Cape Town is one thing, because it says something about the nature of that space. It happens to be the case, first of all, within Oxford, that Rhodes is physically quite marginal to the space. You're not walking through the centre of Oxford and you see Rhodes controlling the space. But also, I don't feel that Rhodes in Oxford represents what Rhodes in South Africa represents. Rhodes in Oxford is the Rhodes scholarship, this remarkable thing which entirely transcended what... um, So just very quickly, the Rhodes Scholarship is? The Rhodes Scholarship is a a set of scholarships for people from the Commonwealth... Colonials. Well, people from the Commonwealth, but also, I mean, he was a special kind of racist, um, Cecil (laughs) Rose, an Anglo-Saxon racist, so he includes also the Americans and the Germans as as well, the German Rhodes Scholarships, which bring lots of people to Oxford, like, um, you know, Bill Clinton and Naomi Wolf and uh, Chris Christopherson. The Rhodes Scholarship has been a uh, an incredibly interesting and rich part of recent Oxford. Yeah, but the difficulty I've got with that is if you mm-hmm. say it's it's fine to take him down in South Africa, but in Oxford he should probably stay up. I mean, we're now living in a globalised world where we have South African students who are coming to Oxford and they don't like it. Oxford needs to appreciate the nature of its 20th century history. It needs to know where its strengths have come from. And this particular strength, which is a remarkably important part of the history of Oxford, came from diamonds and Cecil Rhodes and, and the, the, the unpalatable things that Cecil Bonnie Graham. You know, I'm listening, and I think what, what we deny in not removing these statues, I, I don't believe in breaking things up. I'm not like a con class in that sense. But I think what we deny ourselves is our human capacity. We learn things. We suddenly find out another story. And then suddenly the statue becomes something else. And that's all right. The statue then disappears from a particular space and goes into another space. And the reason it goes into another space is so that it can encompass our human capacity. We can then begin to interrogate the statue and everything around it. For a young South African to come into Oxford, which is a city of scholars... It's there for scholarship. And this person says, this statue shouldn't be in this place where in, where it is. Let's put it somewhere else where we can have this particular conversation because to put it where it is actually says something about this place of learning, which is not correct. John Davidson, do you draw a distinction between a, a statue of Cecil Rhodes in uh, Cape Town and in Oxford? Well, I do think that context is important, but I I also would caution against from our perch here in the 21st century, assuming uh, and accepting that a statue that is up today in 2017 is an endorsement 
of the reasons the statue was was put up or what the statue represented in times past. There's a statue of Oliver Cromwell in London, and I don't think that the reason that um, the Londoners and British folks keep it up is to endorse regicide and rebellion. Well, yes. It's part of of the, the, the history of the British people. And I think statues, the meaning of statues can change over time and the spaces... Uh, the way they affect the viewer can change over time as well. A lot of the statues uh, of the Confederacy and of Confederate generals that we have here in America are very, if you have just even a modicum of historical knowledge, uh, are very haunting places, as, as haunting as, as the battlefields themselves and, and the cemeteries and, and the graves. And they recall a painful past and invite the viewer to wrestle with it and to, uh, in yeah, some ways... I, I mean, I'm just wondering how far you can go with that, because if, if you take India and Pakistan, I mean, you surely wouldn't expect them to, which they haven't, keep up their statues of Queen Victoria, who yeah, was their imperial ruler. And you wouldn't put Oliver Cromwell up in Dublin, would you? Mm. I mean, you know, this is, this, is, this is the story that I'm talking about. And to talk about hauntingness and, you know, yes, it, they were terrible. But these statues don't have to go away. They go somewhere where we can learn about them in a proper and intelligent context. Okay, I get it. there's another area we wanted to discuss. And, and John, uh, John Davison, you've touched on it, which is how this is all playing in with contemporary politics uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And I'm going to give you a quote from Steve Bannon, the recently ousted chief strategist in the White House. This is what he said in that interview, which he gave to, uh, I think it was American Prospect, just before he got kicked out. And this is what he said. The Democrats, the longer they talk about identity politics, I've got them. I want them to talk about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats. So, I mean, I raise that quote because it it does speak to this whole debate. I mean, it seems that Steve Bannon will be looking at this and many others, no doubt, on, on his side of the political debate and saying, look, when when the left argues about these statues, it emboldens the right, it sort of unifies the right and it helps the right and the right will win this argument. Is that, is that John Davison, what's your reflection on it? Uh, I think that there is something to that. You know, we saw a lot of people in 2016 vote for Trump. Millions of people voted for Trump, especially in the Midwest and through Appalachia, who in 2012 and in 2008 voted for Barack Obama. Uh, And these were really key swing voters, um, a lot of them in white working class areas, uh, who decided to uh, vote for Trump rather than vote for Hillary Clinton. And part of the reason for that, I I do think, is because the Democrats have overreached and uh, pressed identity politics a little too far. Nobody likes to be told that they're a racist. And uh, for working class and poor white folks in the Midwest and in the Deep South and in Appalachia to be told that constantly by the left and by Democratic leadership that they enjoy white privilege, greats. And so when it comes time to, to vote and it comes time to show you know, party allegiance uh, or to pick a, a, a candidate, uh, I think that that does have an effect on voter behavior. And for the Democrats, I think they see identity politics and uh, the issues of, of race and how they're connected to these statues 
as a as a a way to uh, mobilize their base. What they see is their base. There has been a concerted effort uh, ever since Barack Obama was elected president to actually cause this demographic to self-identify as the being oppressed by some sort of uber minority that's telling You're them. You're talking who about they the white working class. Yes, mm-hmm. and 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 they've, they've been worked on continuously since Obama has been in office. What has really happened is that the Republican Party and the and the right, like John, because I don't I don't consider him to be any part of what Steve Bannon is about. I could be wrong, but uh, <laughs> uh, that they have allowed a hostile takeover by a person who doesn't have any politics. That that's the tragedy that's going on. No, no, but so, no, no, so, let's just address the point. It, 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 the left have talked about identity politics for for some time. I mean, for decades, and. Uh, what the argument is that this is a reaction now to it. It's a backlash. There's no question about right. that. Right. And, and, and what Steve Bannon is saying is that's what the politics of this are. And he, is, he believes if you fight the politics on those grounds, and I think uh, John Davison is saying that the electoral results of recent years suggest that Steve Bannon may have a point, the right will win that argument. But you cannot then the United States of America say that then we suddenly turn our attention to some guy out of work in Youngstown, Ohio, and that's what this is about. It's much deeper than that. Bannon is base. I'm not going to go into Steve Bannon, but Bannon is about base politics, and he's found a base and identified it, and all of these things play into it. It's a much more complex situation, much more complex than this. I think there's a reason that we're having a discussion about Confederate statues now, and we didn't have a a discussion like this 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And one of the reasons for that is that the Democratic Party, for, for many years, up until very recently, relied on and counted working class whites in the South and in the Midwest and Appalachia as part of their base. Those voters have fled the party uh, and, uh, and and the Democrats, Democratic leadership no longer views those voters as uh, sort of persuadable. And so there's no reason to, uh, uh, to, to not go after uh, sort of these symbols of Southern heritage as a way to mobilize the, what they is, see as a core, as a core constituency, that, which is that, 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 liberal that, elites in the cities. That's hysterical, and, and, and it's and not minority right. Rights. That, Look, that's, I mean, hold on, let John Davis make his point and then come back, Bonnie Gray. I'm, I'm saying there's, there, there, there's, there's very little cost from the Democratic leadership's point of view of, of making an issue out of these statues and making, uh, and making an issue out of identity politics. They believe that's the future of the party. They're not interested in winning over white working class voters. Okay. Okay. They don't think they'll the ever come back the, well, to the you know, party. Well, you know, that, that, that we're, we're all into some strange waters here. I mean, let, let's, let's be clear. The person who, rang, who brought a flag down was a Republican governor, uh, Nikki Haley, who's now U.N. secretary. This is not about that. What this is about are people in the South, young people particularly, becoming awake and aware as to what these statues are about. They're not Democrats. They could care less about the Democratic Party. They're interested in what these statues are about. And what my father, who grew up in Mississippi, who was in a segregated army and told me about, he couldn't do anything about them. Now these people are. Can we just finalise it like this? And I'm going to ask you to look ahead because uh, clearly th- this debate has just you know, flared up and who knows, it may just uh, go away or it may become a big theme. Jo- John Davidson, uh, where's this going? When you talk about tearing down statues, it's almost always political. Um, and, and I think that to the extent that identity politics are here to stay, 
uh, and uh, that this issue is here to stay because this issue is joined very closely to uh, identity politics and the danger of of pressing and and uh, uh, fomenting identity politics is that eventually you end up for with identity politics for white people, which is a lot of what Trump's support was about last year. And that's a very dangerous thing. And it's an unhealthy thing in America. We need to find a way to get away from talking about identity politics and talk more about what makes us Americans. America is defined by creed, not by ethnicity or or national origin. Uh, and, and that's the source of what makes America great and what has made us resilient and what has allowed us to become one people through much difficulty, uh, through over a, a very turbulent history um, that the statues and the Civil War are a part of. OK, um, so that's a future you don't want. Bonnie Greer, can I, can I ask you to look ahead? Uh, I, I like looking at human beings as, as a dynamic, us as a dynamic entity, as dynamic process. This is a process. The United States of America is unique in that it always opened itself up to human process and human progress. This is a bad time. This is a hard time. But it is a time in which people are beginning to question the origins of their country, what their country is about, and we're going to come out of it on the good side. Professor, what happens when your identity, politics-minded students become professors? <laughs> I don't know, but but what if they become students in my subject? They'll be, and this continues to be a topic. Um, they'll be continue to be amazed that we're still thinking in such cl- classical terms. I mean, I think my my ultimate position on this is that we, as a culture, are dealing in statues with something that doesn't really make sense to us anymore. It doesn't make sense to us. None of us have the deference that a statue culture requires. We're all too determined, and rightly, I think, determined to find the flaws in in our in our in our leaders. So the the future is abstract in terms of statues, I think. We're not deferential enough towards statues. No, exactly. And and, okay. and America's a very Roman culture. It's it's, mm. it's founded on Rome, it's Roman ideas. And so we have now a bunch of Greeks running around tearing them down. That's wonderful. <laughs> thank you all very much. We're getting into uh, more and more wild territory. Uh, th- thank you very much, uh, Bonnie Greer, John Davidson, Professor Llewellyn Morgan. Uh, very interesting discussion. Let us know what you think. Newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet at bbcnhextra. But that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. From Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.